Hi, this is a podcast of the Best Bits of the Breakfasters for the week ending July 17. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, you will hear uh, our chat with Al Cossa from MIF to talk about what's happening for the Melbourne International Film Festival this year. And also Michael Harden dropped by to talk about Lamingtons because uh, Lamington Day is in a couple of days' time, July 21, if you didn't know. Excellent. We also got to chat to Ursula Carlson, uh, whose Netflix special is available now, uh, Overqualified Loser. And also, um, I went to the I went to the pub for dinner. No big deal. <laughs> um, filling in for Geraldine, who was away, Alex Ward talked us through the traps her dad set for Father Christmas. Also, Ricky Lee Erickson for Feature Creatures looked at uh, marine animals that just love ISO. And Rachel Wood from Second Stitch uh, talked about making face masks for the community amid, you know, the whole pandemic situation that's going on. Triple R. Sunday night. <clears throat> yes. I went to the pub for dinner. Oh, oh God. I know. I know. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I forget uh, you're um, outside the ring of fire. Yeah, that's right. Um, as in, yeah, not in lockdown. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, curry, no. No. <laughs> Knew someone was going to make that joke. Oh no, I'm there. sorry. <laughs> Coffee hasn't kicked in, so I went there. Uh, but it's but in you know because it's that's the, we've talked about a lot. It's the, like one of those things that we really missed during lockdown, and then when we had that brief chance, when you guys had that brief chance to go out and have meals at pubs, and um, and when we got to do it, it was you know it's very much appreciated and we loved it. And, um, and so I got to do it again. And this is like the second time I've been to the pub for dinner this whole time that, but I had, um, cause I'd already had the Palmer and the pint like last week or whenever I was like, I'm at this pub and Cass like, she's going to get the Palmer. And I was like, Oh, should I, maybe I should, get something else maybe I should try something else and there was a steak and I was like oh it's very expensive though and then I was like oh and not, there was like a um, a lamb shank and you know what got me over the line was like um it was served with like you know mashed potato and gravy and you know vegetables and stuff and I was like I kind of feel, you know, when sometimes you're at the pub and you just feel like a good mash and, oh, and veggies. I, bangers and if I don't have a schnitzel, if like, it's a hard line call for me. If there's a bangers and mash, there was menu. a bangers and mash. Oh, I love it! I love a bangers and mash and, and gravy. It's so. Oh mate, it, I can't tell you the the. I was over because, but we'd had sausages the night before. Oh. So I was like, I can't get bangers. I can't have sausages two nights in a row. I can't get the steak because it's like. $12 more expensive. I'm like, maybe I could get that, but I don't want to spend, you know, a lot of money on this steak. And I'm like, I don't know. And I'm like, you just get the palmer. Just get the palmer again. You always get the palmer. Just get the – and the the waiter was no help at all. I was like, I'm just trying to decide. She goes, oh, I don't really like lamb, but it's very popular. I'm like, all right, I'll just get the – I'll get the lamb. You never, you never want the waiters. You know they give you their personal. You kind of want their personal opinion, but you don't want their ta- like what they yeah. What I they mean, like if they like, taste. It, I want to. Yeah, I want exactly. Yeah. <laughs> if they don't like it, 
just lie. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, like, I ended up getting the, I got the lamb shank and I was so disappointed. <laughs> like, oh, was, I'm I sorry. Know. I know. It was just like this, veggies were like oversteamed and it was just the oh. most, and the mash was not good. Oh. And I was just like, oh, and then Kathy was sitting there with her palm and she goes, this is such a good palm oh. This is so- um, and I was like, oh. Yeah, this. you blew it. I really did. I really, really did. And then, um, but we're, I was like looking at, at the, and I'm like, we're going to get dessert, aren't we? Because it was sticky date pudding. Oh, on, yes. On, oh, yeah, and we're like, baby. and that was, you know, the thing that was getting me through was like, that's all right. We'll get some, get to some dessert. I was even, oh, like, Kath was most excited about the sticky date pudding, but I was like, um, because normally we just get, like, one to share, but I was like, no, I'm going to get some ice cream as well. We've got ice cream with topping. I'm going to get vanilla ice cream and chocolate topping. That's what I'm going to do. You get sticky date pudding, I'll get some ice cream. We'll share. It'll be the best. Um, and then so that was the thing that was, like, got me through. And Kath was like, because she goes, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Your meal's not good. I'm like, if after the day that we've had, and this is the worst thing that I've got to complain about, in in our life right now, I think we're doing yeah. we're doing all right, you know. Yeah. Um, so, and then yeah, we finished our meals, and then it was taking ages for them for the waiter to come back. I think she just kind of thought that we that's we didn't want anything else, or she got our meals finished. What else are you hanging around for? We had drinks, um, so she kind of um, didn't come over. And also I think there was multiple different rooms that they were working in. So anyway, just took us a while to get her attention. And the whole time Kath was stressing, um, sorry, just came out. She's like, I really want to order now because I think that the, um, they're going to run out of sticky date pudding. She goes, look how many things have been crossed off that that chalkboard. Oh. And I went, I think there's, those things have been crossed off because they've got a limited menu for, you know, because mm. of lockdown reasons. And she goes, no, don't. I think it's because they're going to run out. And then I saw there was another table next to us and then they had like a takeaway container. And I said, oh, look at that. They've just taken the I bet you that's the last sticky date pudding that they're about to take home. She goes, don't you dare. Like, her fear was so, she goes, I don't pander to your fears. I don't care. <laughs> Just because I have a very specific fear right now that they're going to run out of sticky date pudding. I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I don't so think I've ever felt so close to Kath in my whole life. Like that, that is, I can just emotionally relate to that feeling on so many levels, but I would never articulate my fear. I'm always scared they're going to run out of sticky date pudding. I'm always scared they're yeah. going to. Often, you with your, particularly at regional pubs, you go, "Can I have this sticky date pudding?" And they go, "Oh, you know, we're not even serving that tonight." And you're like, "No, I'm eating this whole meal thinking about that." Yeah. Uh, and then we saw there was a another. There's two women on another table who got there after us who were eating, uh, having a shared dessert. I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's that should be us having that sticky date pudding. That's, you know, and then um, and then we're just kind of and waiting, waiting, and eventually managed to get our waiter to come over. Um, and we said, can we, um, I said, oh, can we order some dessert? And she went, yes, but we've run out of sticky date pudding. No. Mm. <laughs> I just, I couldn't, I had, to, oh, man, it was just, 
And I went, oh, no. And I said, sorry, that's our biggest fear that this has come true. And she went, I'm really sorry. And there, there was no offer, would you like anything else? It was just, we know, we all know what you want. So there is no point in going on. Oh, <laughs> she said, sorry, God. I think you like 40. I didn't work, okay. And then she just walked away. And then we, yeah. We had to go home without the, with no sticky date pudding. So, what's yeah. the moral of the story? Do you reckon pre-ordering dessert? I think so, and that's yeah, that's do what they, I said. I said let you do time. that. Yeah, you order all at the same. I think you when you order, you I'll have a Parma, and later we're going to have a sticky date pudding. I think I think absolutely. I think we and I said that's what we'll do next time because mm. we all there's no once if at the start of the meal. If you decided you're going to have dessert, then you're going to have dessert. Like yeah, there's no yeah. getting to the end of your God, oh, no, I can't fit it in anymore. You'll, you'll fit it in because you've been waiting for it. You'll love it. Or is it, yeah. or is it be more aggressive with the getting the waiter? So don't wait patiently, walk up to them and say, I just really want to get in my order for sticky date pudding, wherever they I are. I think the time... I think maybe that's why she was already avoiding us. Oh, really? I think, I think the ship had already sailed. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Triple R. Last year, Ursula Carlson became the highest-selling comedian in the 33-year history of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, taking home the coveted People's Choice Award. Today, her stand-up special, Overqualified Loser, makes its global premiere on Netflix. And ahead of its launch, the beloved South African New Zealand comedian, and have you been paying attention regular, joins us on the line now. Ursula, welcome to Breakfasters. Hi, good morning. How are you? It is a good morning. Congratulations. Thanks. That sounds super impressive. I'm like, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's 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 a big day, and um, it's interesting because in the special you mentioned that you spend 300 days of the year usually on the road. Yeah. What what now? Well, now I can see when I look at my kids. They if they were older, I'd say give them another five years, they'd have a GoFundMe page going around (laughs) trying to get me out of the country. (laughs) No, but they get antsy too, like, because we travel together, you know, like both the kids have been around the world twice and the one's three and the one's seven, you know. So they miss it. Like my son said to me the other day, when are we going to the bush? And he calls Africa the bush. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Uh, so it is weird, but it's quite nice. I'm actually loving it. I'm like a 1950s housewife. All I've been doing is cleaning, baking. I've even done sewing and so proper 50s housewife. That's even sad. avoiding peanuts. Have you, yeah. have you learned are these things <laughs> these things that you've been doing, did you already know how to do them or have you learnt any new skills? No, mate, I'm a farm kid. I knew how to do all of that. Well done. Yeah, now I'm sitting here in the city, you know, but I've got a nice, I've got a yard. You know, I feel sorry for people who are stuck in apartments because now after this lockdown, like, we're sort of on the other side of it now where we have no community transmission. Don't want to break Melbourne people, but we have no community transmission so we can, you know, move freely and stuff so we can get away from each other. But the number one thing that people were Googling after we came out of lockdown is how separation works. (laughs) oh my god really yeah that's the number one thing which i i applaud that i think that's good i think you should stay emotionally fluid (laughs) you know don't get too hooked on one person because then when you're old like 
You're in your 90s. Now you and your partner die three days within each other and you wipe out your entire top tier of your family, devastating the rest of the family members. So I reckon you need to keep it loose. Uh, it's, <laughs> sorry, Jez, go on. I was going to say, New Zealand went to, what was it, eight, eight weeks of a hard lockdown? Yeah, yeah, but like proper. Because now I still talk to my Aussie friends and they, we're in lockdown, but you still go to work. We didn't have that. You couldn't go to work. You couldn't get a coffee. You couldn't, like, nothing was open. It mm. was like, it was eerie. It was so quiet. What were you doing yeah. in those eight weeks? It was baking. Baking. Oh, that's what you, that's when you were, oh, my God. Yeah. Both my kids are the size of me now. Like, <laughs> no, <laughs> honestly, we were all baking. You couldn't find flour. You couldn't. It was full lockdown. You weren't allowed out. Oh, my God. You weren't allowed to go in your car unless it was to this grocery shop. So the grocery shops were open, but you had to queue up. Everything was queuing up and stuff. It was, it was insane. But we went real hard and now. We're free, baby. We're free. Do you think your kids have had a pretty different upbringing to you? A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. For my fourth birthday, I got a twenty-two rifle. (laughs) 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 I don't trust my son with a nerve gun. Um. Go back to the gun for a second. Yeah. What yeah. does a four-year-old do um, with a twenty-two rifle? Yeah. Well, no, that was just on the farm. You know, when you go out, you take a twenty-two. Like, I honestly didn't think you could actually kill anyone with a twenty-two till I moved to New Zealand. I was like, people are killing each other with these things. Like, we didn't even keep them in the safe. Mine was just under the bed. <laughs> it's, 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 yeah, sorry, go on. It was a game farm, you know, so it's a bit different. Like, but mm. even then, you know, like my brother used to say, don't ever shoot any of the animals with that. You'll just aggravate them. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you need something good. So, how do you, how do you, uh, it, does that change your approach? Like, do you, do you try and instill uh, some values that maybe you grew up with that it's, you know what? Yeah. No, just that it's – you know where I'm going, that it's it's harder, you know, because you, you at one point in your life you grew up, what, four of you to a room. Yeah, yeah, like we're real poor. And I, I do – and I take them with me, like when they do the big sleep out, I take them with me. Like I never sleep outside because I, I don't see the point in that. But I donate money and I'll go MC their event and I'll say to them. And every time anything comes up or – and we sponsor a kid um, – here in New Zealand, in our suburb, because you can choose. So we we said we want to sponsor someone who lives close to us, who whose parents can't afford to feed them or clothes. So we do everything from buy their school gear to whatever. And I've got her picture on the fridge and always say, that's your sponsor sister. Because mm. they, they don't get to meet. I go, but so they understand that there are people who don't have what they have. Mm. You know, and and even now with the lockdown, I said so many people are losing their jobs or losing big chunks of their income. I said, and you're lucky where you're used to nothing. No, where um, you know, like we can afford to go for a couple of months, you know, because we live where we live and we do what we do. I said, so 
but there are people who from week one have been struggling, have to line up for food, you know. And I make them watch the news with me. Like my sister, my sister's one of those. She doesn't even watch the news. She goes, it's too grim. I said, but that's the reality. I want my kids to know that not everyone is the same. You know, there are people who are struggling and it's our job to make sure that we help other people and that we, you know, sort of, you can't just go through life go, everything is amazing. It's not, everything is not amazing. There are people who are really struggling and it's our job to help those people. Yeah. What about taking a joke? Like, is that something that you need to teach or? Yeah. You know what? I, because, um, you know, like some people don't like to be teased. My wife doesn't like to be teased at all. And I think that's a good (laughs) base for being able to take a joke later in life. Like, with both my kids, they both, you can tell they know what, they understand what a joke is and they know how to tease each other and, like, it never becomes real feral. Because <laughs> 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 I recognise feral because my sister can't say, but you can't tease her either. My mum used to say to my brother and I, I swear to God, if you don't stop teasing your sister, I'm going to put you in military school. <laughs> so my brother and I did really well in military school. I tell you what. <laughs> Um, you're also a famously sort of, well, overqualified entertainer, uh, not just of audiences, but at, at home. Of course, Melbournians can't do that at the moment. But when when we can have people around again, is there any, do you have any advice about how to be the best host and hostess you can? Um, yeah, try not to be drunk before they arrive. That is always... <laughs> This is a good starting point. If you are still functioning before your guests arrive, that is amazing. You're on track. <laughs> yeah. And always try, if you, especially if you're cooking, because I always cook for people, but I try and do like half of it. So you sort of just have to do the finishing touches when they get there. Like don't set yourself up by then starting, you know, like a big fire or then starting like be ready so you can get food in those people so you can soak up the booze. Yeah, that's nice. Uh, is is and when when does this show actually drop? Well, it's today, but seven o'clock New Zealand time, so five o'clock Melbourne time, because they try and make it the best time for the country that you live in, mm. right? So your audience gets to see it first. But um, if you've ever been to one of my shows and your kids are still awake at seven, you may want to go show them something in the garage and close the door on them for a bit. (laughs) (laughs) For one hour and two minutes, lock your kids in the garage. It's not filthy, but I wouldn't want my kids to watch it. (laughs) I mean, they are going to watch it because they've been in the car with me when I'm driving, so they're used to swearing. (laughs) Was your your grandmother, uh, correct me if I'm making this up, but was your grandmother a bit prudish or easily offended? A bit. She was mm. the first female minister in South Africa, like, you know, Christian minister. She built a church on her property and she had like a full congregation that would come like four or five days a week, like very, you know, you couldn't say anything. If you were in a room and there was a Bible in that room and why would there not be a Bible in that room? Um <laughs> And if you're in a bad mood, then she'll sort of just walk in and touch the Bible and go, God's watching you. (laughs) (laughs) I tell you, that affected my early teens quite a bit. (laughs) No, she's very, very religious, very religious. Yeah. 
There's what, like what you, eight ministers in my family. There's a lot of a lot of Christians in that family. And I then, didn't know that about you, but it, now you just make a lot more sense. Like, it does, right? Yeah. That's why I always send the hat round and get some coins at, <laughs> uh, there in my show. So <laughs> keeping people honest. <laughs> and and what what was it like to shoot this special in Melbourne? Um, it was good. I. Because Melbourne always feels a bit like a home game for me. That's why, because they ask you, where do you want to do it? And I thought, you know, like the obvious answer would be Auckland, but then I thought, I love the old buildings in Melbourne. I love the old theatres. I love the, um, you know, and so I said, I'm going to do it in Melbourne and hope that no one in New Zealand finds out. (laughs) (laughs) This is just for you guys, right? Is this a podcast? Oh, God. Would people genuinely get offended, do you reckon? Um, No, but, you know, because New Zealand and Australia have this weird competition thing with each other, which I don't understand because to the rest of the world, you are just one. Yes. Yeah. 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 You go anywhere outside of Australia and New Zealand, they go, oh, you're from down under. You're like, yeah. (laughs) And they they always go, yeah, the Sydney Opera House and Kiwi Boots. And you're like, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All of that. And, and just uh, quickly, do you, will you be celebrating at all, do you think, or w- when it goes live? Um, well, I've got my friends coming over and we're going to have fish for dinner. So oh, that's yeah. a celebration. That's a big, yeah. I mean, I've got some gin here, so I'll probably drink a <laughs> bottle of that. Gin and fish. <laughs> no, I don't think you really, like, when the first one, the Comedians of the World one came out too, I went really hard that night. Yep. It was New Year's, so I was real <laughs> excited. And then I went live afterwards, and I, to this day, I'm not sure what happened that night. <laughs> but I found my real father. Well, Overqualified Loser, Ursula Carlson's new Netflix special, uh, appears later on today. And uh, we've been speaking to the multi-award winning comedian. Thanks so very much, Ursula. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. means a lot. I'm hungry. I want something to eat. Something with a crunch and very sweet. Food interluding with us today is our professional launcher in lockdown, Michael Harden. Hello, Michael. Hello, Daniel. How are you going? Yeah, excellent. Um, Got to say, pretty excited about this morning. Yes, well, it does. It is. It is uh, um, a treat that stirs the hearts of every Australian. <laughs> 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 Loving to, my my favourite treat, my absolute favourite treat. I have a terrible story um, from when I first started Breakfasters, and uh, you, you you come off air when you're not used to getting up really early, and you have all this adrenaline, and then adrenaline drains from your body, and you desire sugar in extraordinary amounts, and yeah. about. Two months into doing this job, I sat at my desk trying to write and ate an entire packet of those finger lamingtons that you get from the supermarket. Anyway, I still love lamingtons. From the way you describe it, it wasn't so much eating as pushing them pushing, in. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pushing the fingers in one by one, yes. I just feel like there was sort of clouds of desiccated. <laughs> That's right. Anyway, sorry. Lamington's Michael. <laughs> yes, well, um, we sort of decided to talk about those because, of, as you all obviously know, July 21st is National Lamington Day. <laughs> um, I'm not sure whether you're um, all members of, alas, 
which is the Australian Lamington Appreciation Society, which is actually a thing. <laughs> um, so they, and they sort of they sort of lead the celebrations every year. But it's sort of like Lamingtons are, you know, it's one of those those Aussie sweet Aussie treats that um, you know there there is a little bit of um, mystery around you know how it actually began and everything. There's even um, a whole book on the subject of Queensland academic named Morris French wrote a book called The Lamington Enigma, A Survey of the Evidence. So oh, my you know, very God. Sort of <laughs> These are the letters we need to read. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Finally putting the, the controversy to rest. But what doesn't seem to be um, in dispute is that uh, they were, it was Lord Lamington who was the governor of Queensland from 1896 to 1901. So it was either him or his wife, Lady Lamington. And, like, you know, isn't that a marketing opportunity just waiting to happen, Lord and Lady Lamington? I feel like a, a sort of a Moomba-style celebration. <laughs> but, um, so there's, there's sort of like basically they're kind of like they don't really know how it happened. They're, they're, one of the stories is that they say that uh, one of the kitchen maids um, dropped a sponge cake into a vat of chocolate and uh, he was, um, Lord Lamington didn't like waste and so he sort of suggested the coconut thing. But, you know, that seems to be um, a little bit undermined by another story where it was the French chef of Lord Lamington that they had. He had some leftover sponge cake. They had some unexpected guests. They decided, the French chef decided to dip it in chocolate and then roll it in coconut. And they reckon that that was probably the reason because this French chef had a, had a wife who was from Tahiti. And um, coconut really wasn't used very much at the time in European cooking. And so they think that probably it was the wife's um, influence that um, led to the coconut on the outside. Mm. But anyway, it was um, so they that was sort of like the first time that a Lamington recipe appeared in print was in 1900. And then that took on like wildfire. So by 1914, they were um, Lamingtons were like a staple of regional cooking competitions and fairs and shows across the country. And um, they think one of the reasons for that was because they um, were very transportable, like Lamington was very transportable, because once you got the icing on the outside and the coconut stuck to it, you could chuck them in the back of the car and you could go over a corrugated iron road off to your um, off to your fair <laughs> and it would still stay intact. And also they would keep they would keep a bit fresh as well. So, you know, it's sort of like there was some some good Aussie practicality as well as, uh, you know, the deliciousness of the uh, chocolate coconut combo. Can I Dead ask set. you a really quick, oh, sorry, question? Yeah. When did, because I won't eat a lamington without jam, when did the jam ah. layer get introduced? That is a very controversial thing. Yeah. Because it's like, you know, there are purists, a.k.a. me, who don't believe that um, jam should be oh. part of a lamington. It's sort of like, but, but, um, but you've got... <laughs> But, you know, then you've got, then I, I had to sort of step back a little bit because the, you know, the Empress, Margaret Fulton, um, she <laughs> always, she always um, liked to sort of add a bit of, berry, it had to be berry jam, you know, some kind of raspberry, strawberry jam um, in hers. Like, but she gave it, it was like a straight Lamington recipe, but then she always added that, you know, you could do the jam layer in it. But so if you're going to um, be... Uh, controversial edgy maverick like you and put jam in your lamington <laughs> when you're cooking it. Um, you want to sort of, you want, you, you have to make sure that when you're making the lamington, you put the jam in before the chocolate coating. You don't 
chocolate coat it and then cut it in half and put jam on. Like, so to do it properly, you need to jam it and then roll it in the, put it in the chocolate so that the jam is contained. So it's like a surprise. Mm. And what about Michael? Sorry, sorry, Daniel, you go. Well, we we are just, we are fighting to ask questions about this. (laughs) Go, Daniel. No, I was just interested in savoury lamingtons or uh, is there any sort of genuine uh, experimentation going on? There is, yeah, like, you know, and, you know, I'm sorry to do this to you all, but there is such a thing as a glamington. Oh. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, Which is sort of like, you know, fancied up lamingtons with, you know, gold leaf and, uh, you know, soaked in panna cotta and that sort of stuff. There's, there's, um, There's a couple of places, like there's a place in Sydney that's doing some interesting stuff. Um, sort of using some Asian flavours and stuff. So it's using, so there is lamingtons with like salted egg and lamingtons with pandan and things like that. So um, I'm not sure whether or not they're actually lamingtons. Like I'm a, you know, again, I say I'm a little bit of a purist in this. A lamington Mm. is a lamington. A martini is a martini. Espresso martini is not a martini. (laughs) (laughs) How do a last feel about this? (laughs) Say that again. How do Alas feel about these additions? Yeah, I, I think Alas is fairly, you know, they're fairly straight down the line. They might allow, if you want to get really fancy, they might allow you to cut a lemon in half and put some whipped cream in it along with the jam, you know, just to sort of on a special occasion. Obviously. Yeah, like birthdays. Or- yeah, yeah, exactly, you know, Queen's birthday or something. So, um, you know, that 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 would be about it. But um, the other thing that another controversy with the Lamington is that uh, there was one stage that there was, a you know, another New Zealand-Australian tussle over who um, made the Lamington. But this was actually an April Fool's prank by The Guardian in um, 2014 where they pranked everybody by saying that the Lamington was actually actually made in New Zealand, including they used a watercolour picture from, a famous watercolour picture from New Zealand at the time, and they photoshopped a half-eaten lamington into the into the, into the the actual painting to prove that they were from New Zealand and they used to be called a Wellington. And it was such a successful prank that they're sort of like that it was on, it stayed on Wikipedia for a couple of years and people are still arguing about it. And, um, again, alas, gets very sniffy. If you ever mention New Zealand origins of uh, of Lamingtons, so um, you know, there. I'm going to I'm going to do that with the Jacinda Ardern. I'm going to start photoshopping her into Australian. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I had a question. So Sarah was talking about these finger Lamingtons. Yes. Does it matter because that changes the amount of sponge, right? The quantity of sponge. If you're making a finger Lamington, it's about half the amount of sponge of the traditional cubed, more rectangular. Um, yes. Lemington. So do you think that that is an important factor in the Lemington? Because I feel like it does completely change the flavour when you halve the amount yeah. of sponge. And would yeah. the traditionalists, the Alas team, would they be approving of these finger Lemingtons? They'd be, they'd probably be a little bit condescending towards a finger lamington, you know, sort of like it's not a really, like, you know, you're kind of more relying on the chocolate then rather than the sponge as being the central thing, you know, mm. like, you know you've got to get the sponge chocolate ratio right. So, you know, I think that they probably will allow that as a sort of a lesser lamington, but, um, you know, yeah. I think that basically if you're going to be, if you're going to eat a lamington, you know, do it right. Sarah, this must be tough for you. It's almost like 
Alessa telling you you love chocolate and jam and not a lamington. <laughs> I stand by my lamington, my jam lamingtons. Uh, is there a town in Australia that's particularly famous for lamington? You know how sometimes the towns well, take on a, a particular dessert with fervour? Is there a lamington town in Australia? We, we, well, we're getting into controversial territory again oh. here, Sarah, because there is an ongoing dispute um, between three places in in Queensland because there's no dispute that the that the Lamington came from Queensland but there's an ongoing squabble between Brisbane, Toowoomba and Ipswich about who so they're kind of like that and they're all sort of wrangling around at the moment Ipswich seems to be knocked out of the running by the by the look of it it's sort of like you know their, their claim was fairly pathetic but, oh, that's um, my hometown so yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'll, give them, I'll give them a call yeah. <laughs> So yeah, there you go. So, but Toowoomba has got a pretty good, pretty good case because um, Lord Lamington had a uh, a house up there that he used to escape to when it got too humid in Brisbane. So that's when they're thinking that maybe the Lamington was produced during one of his sojourns up to his uh, the country estate. That's mm. well, July twenty one is Lamington Day. Get on board. Yep. I suppose. Yep. Uh, the coconut can get stuck in your throat. They can be pretty dry. It's not really yeah, the right time. Exactly. of uh, 2020 is not a time to have a dry cough, I'd imagine. Yeah, but everything, <laughs> everything, everything involves a risk, Daniel. <laughs> exactly. Eat at home by yourself. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Don't celebrate Mike, too much. Michael Harden, happy today. Thanks heaps. Yeah. And to you all. Melbourne's own Triple R. Following the unsurprising cancellation of MIF as we know it in 2020, the team pulled together to create MIF 68.5, the first online delivery of the country's oldest film festival. And with the full program now dropped, featuring a suite of films and special events, we're joined by Al Cossa, Artistic Director of Melbourne International Film Festival. Al, welcome back to Breakfasters. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Oh, our pleasure. And congratulations on getting MIF up. Uh, what was it like behind the scenes? Was it as hectic as we'd imagine? Is there actually, ironically, a film in it? <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was several months of franticness because, um, you know, we're, we're building a digital streaming platform as well as programming the festival. So it's like building a cinema at the same time as curating the films. It's a different experience, that's for sure. So it was a hard pivot. It was a big jump into the online space. It was, you know, and, and it's not just a simple matter of getting those films and putting them online and uploading them. You're kind of, you're, you know, you're back at square one. Um, you're building from the ground up again. So, yeah, we're, we're thrilled. We're really proud to be able to offer a program for, for Melbourne, Victoria, for all Australia, and that we have something out in the world. Um, yeah. The we're in. And uh, it aligns with the previously uh, announced dates of the festival, so it all—it's all there. Um, what what's the deal? What have you done? <laughs> <laughs> That's a big question. Well, we're um we're as you as you say, it's the same dates. It's sixth to twenty third August. Um, you'll be able to get all the the, the info from myth.com.au, But essentially, there's a, a streaming platform um that has the whole range of the festival program um available. Um, about 90% of the program is on demand during that time. All the films have particular capacities, so they, they can sell out. 
Um, but there's a, a huge range of eclectic um, world cinema, narrative, documentary, experimental works there. Um, and there's a top-end range of um, program spotlights, which are essentially our galas and headliners or what they would be like in a, in a particular year. So we're opening the, the uh, festival this year with um, Kelly Reichardt's First Cow, which is um, yeah an, an extraordinary film, premiered at Telluride last year, New York and competition in Berlin. And I think one of the, the most important filmmakers we have working today um we're thrilled as well to close the festival with pablo lorraine's emma um so this is uh gail garcia banal uh, mariano de garolamo and it's in the world of reggaeton dance and it's this cool. kind of abrasive free fall through a couple's breakup in the wake of social services um, removing their child for an act of pyromania it's really visual and visceral and there's lots of reggaeton dance and flamethrowers in the mix and all kinds of things um i'm really excited and uh thrilled to present uh boy state within that program spotlight as well um this is by jesse moss who had the and amanda mcbain um and Jesse had the overnighters in, in MIF a few years back and it's set at essentially what is a austin texas um set leadership i guess uh political leadership convention for uh young teenage boys and and they go through a faux election so it has some of that tournament mode sort of charm of spellbound but it's also just a hilarious very crowd pleasing kind of look at i guess what political division is these days if it's possible to kind of bridge that divide and it's also slightly terrifying in terms of what it does tell us about political process but it's i i think it's a, a best nominee um, lock for next year um, at this point. And, you know, outside of that, um, in terms of spotlights, we've got Aubrey Plaza at her career best in Black Bear. We've got Ben Zeitlin's Beast of the Sudden Wild follow-up, Wendy. Um, there's a lot to take apart. There's a lot to be excited about. Yeah. Well, the the categories, oh, sorry, the genres of films, um, you know, so there are 60, fil- 60 features spread across all these genres. Uh, uh, let's look at the music genre. Um, is there is there a is there anything out in the music area that uh, tickles you? I'm looking at the Go Go's, for instance. Yeah, absolutely. So the Go Go's is by Alison Alwood. It's you know it's it's a pretty definitive portrait of Carla and Co's punk to pop sort of reckoning and and really a film that doesn't pull any punches um, in terms of you know facing hit on the drama that that all of them went through. It premiered at Sundance this year. It's a you know extraordinary film, terrific um, rock doc. Alwood, of course, had done her kind of epic two part. Uh, a slant on um, the Eagles, um, just made a, a Laurel Canyon doc as well. So he's, he's pretty incredible as as a rock kind of documentarian. Um, outside of that, I'd also point your attention to Mogul Mowgli. Um, and this is a, a fiction film. It's a passion project for uh, Riz Ahmed from, you know, the, the Night Of and Rogue One and and all kinds of things. Um, it's this collaboration with Bassem Tariq, who had a, a terrific film in myth a few years back called These Birds Walk. It's his fiction debut. But basically, um, Ahmed plays a British-Pakistani rapper, um, and, you know, Ahmed's background before film is as a hip hop artist. So he is commanding like he is incredible as a as a performer and a musician on screen as well as an actor. Um, and he's struck down by a terrible illness, has to go back with his family. And it kind of gives him this reckoning about family identity and, and the cost of his aspiration and amongst everything as well. But that has, you know, an incredibly, I guess, raw and, and, and gritty um, and visceral experience of, of the hip hop scene built into it as well. Mm. How, how did you choose? Did you have to choose to leave stuff out this year that you wanted to have in? And if so, is there what were they, and how did that work? 
Oh yeah, look, we had we had some um, big plans for MIF in a regular sense, and I I probably won't speak too much about them because a number of those we actually hope to revisit next year oh, once cool. we're back. Oh, um, and we'll we'll see what happens with those. But you know, I think we had a lot of really incredible music and film um, events last year, and we had things in the works, um, you know, down that stream this time as, uh, around as well. And we'll see what the state of the world is um, next next edition. But there are things that we weren't able to present that we do hope um, we can push forward and push back into the real world in, in 2021 as well. Um, yeah, look, online is a really different space in terms of programming from cinemas. Um, there's a huge amount of complexity and sensitivity in how people and how filmmakers view that space. And, you know, MIF is part of a big ecosystem of festivals and screen culture organizations and, and you know, places that, that present films in all kinds of ways across the world. And, you know, with a lot of those cancelling, collapsing, postponing, um, it puts a lot of films into varying states of limbo as to how they'll be distributed, where they'll screen, what they'll do, should they wait, should they jump, should they, you know, do this or that. So in terms of putting the festival together, it was um, it was a unique adventure, definitely. Um, every <laughs> film that we wanted to pursue and play was a very specific negotiation with its all, all of its sensitivities, but we really wanted to do something that we felt was um, kind of pure to the the personality of what myth is as a as a festival and what audiences ex- expect from it um and I, I feel proud of where we've got to as a as a team and on, on landing on that i feel like we've been able to do it yeah. i'm so i'm so glad you managed to do it because you know i do comedy and we lost the comedy festival and that yeah. was one big loss and then i'm so glad because it's probably my favorite other festival um and much better to take online than stand-up comedy, I would argue, um, much, much better. <laughs> Thank God they didn't make us do that. Uh, but I'm so glad that I'll still be able to, you know, see things. I do have a question just on how it works. So when you said it's on demand, so that basically means you can watch it when you want, but yet it sells out. So are you watching this at the same time as other people or do you just have a limited sales? I'm just wondering whether I get to know whether I'm watching it and I can imagine the other yeah. hundred people yeah, watching it at the same time. Um, so how, how it all works is, is this. So, um, at the moment we've got a member's pre-sale ticketing window that goes through to Thursday and then um, public ticketing starts on Friday. So from the range of programming, um, we'll have our regular program, which is about 90% of everything. And so those are on demand. And, and by that, um, I mean that when you buy a ticket, you know, you'll be able to view it during our festival window, 6th to 23rd. And when you hit play, you'll have, you know, a 30 hour window to, yeah, play right. to go through the film. And then outside of that, our program spotlights and a couple of other films called special previews um, are one-off screenings. And so they play at a particular date um, and session time. So, you know, our opening night film is presented um, August the 6th at 7 p.m. Um, and so the idea is that people watch it, you know, as, as close as possible yeah. with everyone else. And, you know, if you hit play five minutes after the film starts, there's still a window <laughs> on those evenings where it's all good. Um, and the other You're thing not to mention, be stopped at the doors. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, you know, all of our shorts um, are playing for free as well. And there's a select number of features that are playing for free too. So we really wanted to make part of, um, you know, you know, make that access part of our offering this year too. Can you uh, comment on the global film industry at large? Moving forward, is there going to be a dearth of cinema because no one's been able to make it? Yeah, look, I could say all kinds of things, I think, to that question. But at this point, I feel like everything would be pure speculation. I mean, you know, we're in a completely different situation than we were a week ago. And and, and who knows where we'll be in several months' time. You know, we, we had a huge amount of conversations at 
management and board level and risk consultation and scenario modeling and, you know, all, all kinds of things. And um, to me, uh, I guess, speaking personally and thinking about how audiences react um, to this and, and, and what might be the possibilities going forward in terms of cinemas, uh, you know, on, on one hand, I think you're going to have so many people that when restrictions do ease, they want to kind of go forward and reclaim the space that's been denied to them and, and will kind of re-energize and reignite these kind of cultural spaces. And then I think on the other side, you've got levels of gathering bands and outside of that social distancing protocols and outside of that levels of social anxiety from people who say that they yeah, might not be comfortable to rejoin these spaces for a long time. I think it was uh, maybe it was Spike Lee who tweeted he wouldn't go back into cinemas until a vaccine was available. So I think the reality of things will be somewhere kind of unknowable in, in the middle of those two kind of polar responses. And in terms of films, you know, there's so many films, as I say, in a state of limbo that are waiting and, and poised, ready to release and do all kinds of things. And then there are other films that are on ice in terms of their production. So in terms of the next next year, I guess it's a balancing act of what is stalled, what goes forward, what waits, what can happen from a production point of view it's you know it's it's pure speculation and and that is something that you know is, is obviously very challenging in terms of being able to respond especially when you're a huge organization like like MIF that you know in a regular year is 380 films and 190,000 people and and a, a massive scale to kind of build something around um, in mm-hmm. those Well, MIF 68 and a half runs from August 6th to the 23rd. For info on the full program, head to MIF.com.au. Includes talks as well. I'm looking forward to the death in Brunswick table read. Uh, That looks exciting. And we've uh, we've been speaking with artistic director Al Cossa. Thanks, Al. Thanks, guys. Thanks very much. Triple R. It was so great before talking to Dr. Jen about the importance of play. Um, it actually gave me, it reminded me, like, I think that, you know, and I want to tell you guys about this because you, Daniel, have a, a child. One, mm. yeah. yeah, just the one. <laughs> yeah, just the one and the one rattle. Yes. Um, and Sarah, you've got a baby on the way. But I think after talking to Jen, I was thinking about it. My dad is like the king of play, I've realized, because you know, as small children, definitely, when we were teenagers, he just had the same approach and that was annoying. Um, but, you know, as babies, like, or as little kids, we used to get, like, a puppet show most nights. Like, as in in bed. What? instead of so We'd get read a book, but also we'd get a, like, a, a puppet show. And that was really fun. And we'd get to play the other puppets. And then we also once wrote a book together. I just remembered all this stuff. Oh, my God. Yeah. And uh, when I drew the pictures for it incredible work from a four-year-old uh, the frog doesn't look healthy uh freddie the frog but this this is the best story i want to tell is that we had a tradition and i didn't realize that this wasn't every household but when i was a kid at christmas time dad would have this elaborate story that he was going to catch santa so the idea was that every year he was like i'm sick of kids getting the presents this is what he would tell us. Why don't mm. I ever get any presents? He goes, that's it. This year, I'm going to catch Santa and I'm going to steal all the presents. And we'd all be like, no. Like, he was the bad guy. We were like, you can't do that. You can't catch Santa. And he'd be like, no, I'm doing it. And he would build a unique Santa trap every single year. I know. It's, oh I thought every God. family just did this, right? And then I spoke to other people as I got older and they were like, what? What are you talking about? That we just had this. And then basically every Christmas, every new, uh, Christmas Eve, it was our mission to destroy the trap. Now, 
he would also just casually mention to us how the trap worked and he would build it out of like cardboard and like once he had in like a little smoke machine so we thought it was like he's like it's releasing a gas then santa will pass out the funny thing is just how evil dad seemed and we were like <laughs> you are okay like, with that yeah yeah well he made us turn against him for the good of for the good of the world like every christmas we thought we saved the world as well which is maybe not great for our egos but the three of us kids right so it was this big thing the whole lead up and he would be like come in now there's and he'd always hint there's only one way to destroy this thing like there's only one way and if that gets like salt water on it and he'd be like you know like sort of like the pool is made out of salt water so if something like that was to touch the trap then it would be ruined and he'd get away with it and so yeah every christmas this is the part that goes a bit crazy is that my mother would um would basically help us put dad to sleep by giving him pills which was just two panadols but she told us oh that these, these magic pills would put him to sleep that's so dark. Again, again, I spoke to other kids about this at school and they were like, what? And then, you know, mum was like, don't tell the kids about the pills because they told their parents and they're misinterpreting what's going on. Sometimes they were just tic-tacs and we were like, dad would be like, oh, I'm feeling a bit sleepy and go lie down. And then it was mission time. And then the mission, we would go and get it. And then every Christmas morning, dad would wake up and go, no, what happened? Someone destroyed the trap. And then we'd be like, who was that? We couldn't possibly. But we knew that we had saved Christmas year after year. And looking back at that, I just think that he was just like, that is playful. That is out of Yeah. The- it's also sort of, uh, there's a certain genius to it insofar as uh, instead of the kids staying up late to find Santa they're trying to go to sleep and protect Santa having destroyed the trap. Uh, because, because yeah, I, I just, exactly. all I, and we would go and debrief in the room. We would debrief on how the mission went. And yes. that, that had no oh. idea. And then later we'd sort of sneak out and ask mum if dad was like up and he'd just be sitting out with like my uncle having beers or whatever. And she'd be like, nah, he's still in bed, but <laughs> we're just kids. So we're like, all right, well, so that checks out. We'd go back to the room. He knocked him out cold. I just can't. I'm so impressed by these extraordinary levels of play. We always used to joke that my dad was just waiting for us to get old enough to work on the farm as children. So that was play. Like, as you yeah. know, we turned five and he's like, oh, I think your hands are big enough, but you're still small enough to crawl under the apple trees in the orchard to get the rotten <laughs> apples out. And he'd, and he'd try and make a game out of it. You know, how many how many rotten apples can you collect? Uh, yeah, yeah. That was that was our Santa trap. So I'm feeling extraordinarily jealous now. <laughs> yeah. I feel like there's just angles, you know. If you don't go get the rotten apples, then, like, you know, I also wouldn't get rid of a dummy and they told me Mother Goose, Dad told me Mother Goose needed to give it to a much poorer child and I threw it off the balcony. Oh. I was like, oh, give it to the kid. <laughs> like, I was like, I was obviously like seven or something. <laughs> I was like, able to comprehend this kind of sadness. But, um, but the funny thing is, like, yeah, he was a great father to us as young kids, but then as teenagers, he'd be like, all right, who wants a puppet show? We're like, no, Dad. <laughs> He you also, you have, your time will come, Sarah, when the kid is 13. Your time will come. I know. All I've got is uh, various ways of tricking children into working, which was what I was taught uh, was play as a child. Uh, Daniel, do you have uh, any hot, t- hot tips for um, 
creative play ideas? Do you feel pressure now to to make a soundtrack? Oh, look, but there is a there is a puppet that we bought this puppet, and it's a possum, and it's way too lifelike. It is absolutely <laughs> terrifying. It looks like I've done something horrible to a real animal. Like a taxidermy. <laughs> it looks like a taxidermy puppet, and I'm also um, thing about puppets is I'm. I know that he's way too young to observe this, but I. What if you break the spell of the puppetry? Like, what if, like, because he he looks at Gabriel will look at this puppet and be absolutely bewitched by it as it speaks to him. And I'm like, but what if he sees the puppet inert somewhere else on the cot? And oh. He thinks something's ha- so I have to hide the puppet because <laughs> oh. I don't want him to see this lifeless. Could animal. you just come up with a you know? I mean, possums sleep during the day. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I mean it's I'm complex pl- for a baby. But- <laughs> <laughs> There's no doubt I'm overthinking it for a five-month-old. Uh, but this this puppet is genuinely scary. It actually freaks me out. I don't like doing it. It doesn't like sound a- like a puppet show for teenagers. <laughs> it, it also it's sounds like-, like the kind of thing Gabe will be talking to a psychologist about when he's 38. <laughs> <laughs> And my voice for the puppet is way too. I, I think I've, I, I What's overcommit. What's the voice? Do the voice. <laughs> just oh, it's like gravelly. Yeah, do it. Yeah, it's. I don't want to. No, do it. I'll, I'll need to. It's it's screechy. It's gravelly. I'll have to work up to it. As long as you don't get out and bang on the roof, it's probably not going to be too realistic. No, no. Oh, no. Yeah, it's no. It's too embarrassing. <laughs> it's that? absolutely. I refuse to do it. Oh, oh I God. Do it. <laughs> no. I leave the show with you doing the voice. But can I just quickly say yes. the how for Santa at Christmas flying over the Ward household must have been like, what is it going to be this year? Like <laughs> marbles, trap door. What has this bastard been yeah. in store? I honestly, and I honestly think like, I think dad was relieved when the last child found out. Um, well, you're not any, you know, there could be kids listening. Yes, of course. But, Santa uh, safe, but I think he was relieved. He was like, done. Oh. <laughs> Landlocked marine biologist Ricky Lee Erickson joins us again for Feature Creatures. Hello. Hello. How's it going? Yeah, good. Uh, you're yeah, you you're away from the sea, but your mind is always there. I'm always there and uh, a little bit of a, I mean, it could be a bit of a depressing topic today, but I'm my, my mind's in isolation and I'm wondering what animals in the ocean are always in isolation. And I think it's kind of an interesting thing to think about when we think about humans. The reason why we're so successful is because of our social um, abilities and our and our communities that we form with each other. But so many animals don't rely on that. Um, to get by, they they do have completely different strategies. So I thought I'd, you know, flip the switch and talk about some animals that are quite socially distant and isolated, and maybe we can take some inspiration from them. It's <laughs> <laughs> oh. six weeks lockdown, so I'll start with one of my favourite animals of all time. And when I think of an animal that's got quite a sad life, I think about the Greenland shark. I've talked about oh. them 
this program before. Um, they're from the North Atlantic Ocean and the Arctic Ocean, so up near Greenland, as you would suspect. Um, they're really, really long-lived. So they're the longest-lived vertebrate species. So they can live at least 392 years, plus or minus 120 years. They use radiocarbon dating to do that, so it's a bit of an error. Um, so they live for an extremely long time, and they are... Um, they have parasites that attach to their eyes and turn them blind and they live in the deep sea. So I, I just imagine them swimming around by themselves for hundreds of years without really encountering many other Greenland sharks. And they're also um, not doing well because they're overfished. So what I find interesting about them is their sexual mat maturity is at 156 years old, plus or minus 22 years. So really the only reason that some animals need to come together is to reproduce and they don't need to do that for mm. at least 156 years. God, that is, that is an ethic puberty. <laughs> <laughs> that, when I think about an animal that's just existing, swimming around in the depths of the Arctic Ocean, um, I think of the Greenland shark. Um, another amazing story about um, social isolation is um, one that involves a relationship between glass sponges and a shrimp-like species. Um, so glass sponges are named for their intric intricate glass-like structure. They're actually beautiful. Um, and they contain glass-like structural particles called spicules, and they're made of silica, and they're found in the deep waters of the Pacific Ocean. And there's one really well-known species um, called Euplectella, or the Venus flower basket, and it builds its skeleton. Um, when it builds its skeleton, it actually entraps these little crustaceans for life. So... These shrimp larvae, um, when they're li really little, they kind of swimming around the ocean, they'll settle within a glass sponge. They're still small enough to get within um, the their glass sponge structures. And then as they grow, they become tra trapped for life. And actually, there's multiple shrimp that will originally um, settle within the glass sponge and the two most, the biggest shrimps will eat all of the others until there's just one male and one female left. And then those two are paired for life. They can't leave. <laughs> oh my god! They imprison themselves. Yeah, and they given as a wedding gift, I think, in Japan, uh, which is kind of funny because it's like an imprisonment type scenario. Um, yeah, I don't know. A metaphor for marriage. I'm not sure. But yeah, card that, saying don't eat your children. Yeah, or your siblings. Yeah. yeah, yeah so that, then they would. Those would then reproduce and then those larvae would go and settle other glass sponges. But it's a mutual relationship because they get protection within the glass sponge um, and then also the glass sponge gets cleaned um, by the shrimp and they'll eat anything that's coming off that, that's attaching to that glass sponge. So it's not too bad. I think they, they probably like it. I mean, it's hard for us to relate to a shrimp in the deep Pacific. Uh, it's <laughs> I mean, less so now, but... <laughs> yeah, now we can, exactly. Uh, another interesting one is the pearl fish. Um, it was discovered in 1975 in Indonesia um, when a diver collected a large leopard sea cucumber, which is the big cylindrical invertebrate um, related to sea urchins and sea stars. Um, he dropped the, the sea cucumber in a bucket of water and an eel-like fish swam out of its anus. So the um, these pearl fish um, actually are parasitic to sea cucumbers and they inhabit the anus of a yeah, sea cucumber and they are not very good at playing with each other they are not tolerant of other pipefish they they inhabit this very niche place this <laughs> <laughs> the, 
And that's where they live. Such an and understatement. Yeah. Very niche. And that's a wedding. That's a wedding. That's, that's right. It's a wedding present for people you don't like. Exactly. Yeah. So that's another really odd one. Um, they don't really like <laughs> that. Some species do um, are more social than others. But yeah, the only reason they, they would really leave the um, sea cucumber would be to reproduce as well. And um, that's probably a common theme throughout this is the main reason that animals that do need to seek each other out is just for that reason. Um, the ringed seal is one of the few marine mammals that spend their adult lives alone, um, only found in groups during mating season. And even when they come out of the water onto the ice, they intentionally separate themselves by tens of metres. They just don't like each other. <laughs> as a, are they, as a, is there, is, is I don't want to say is their mating more aggressive, but like are they more aggressive with one another because they just never interact? Is it like grumpy old <laughs> men and women coming out and going, oh, okay, come on. <laughs> I imagine that, like, with the Greenland shark, all the females are observed to have scars from mating. Wow. Um, but interestingly, female skin is twice as thick as the males. So, oh, they've just, they've just developed to resist that. Females have thick skin, yeah. Well, to, to be fair, they can't see what they're doing. Yeah, <laughs> <Exactly>. true. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and there's another really, really interesting, mysterious story. So, uh, for years, this mysterious whale with a unique song has been um, tracked in the Pacific Ocean. Um, it's been named the loneliest whale in the world. Um, we don't know. Is it still out there? Was oh, it really alone? Um, and basically, it sings a song like no other whale. Um, it's it's similar to the blue whale, but its keynotes were at a frequency of um, or at about 52 hertz, um, whereas a blue whale is usually between 10 to 40 hertz. Um and fin whales who have similar songs are at 20 hertz. So we don't they don't know what sex this is, what species it is, or whether it's still live. Um, the original series was finished in 2004 and they had 12 years of um, recording. So every year they went out, they they searched for this whale, they they recorded their song, and they could only ever found find song from one individual. Um, wow. Yeah. So it could, I mean, there's could be lots of explanations it could be um sort of like a hybrid it could be that it was changing its song perhaps um or it could be yeah multiple other things but we still don't really know what this whale was was it really the loneliest whale in the world did it ever find another whale to mate with uh, it's kind of an interesting and also a bit sad story <laughs> Uh, there's a text saying there's an Octonauts episode about that lonely whale. Oh. <laughs> oh, amazing. Uh, I like to think that that whale was independent, uh, lady, just she didn't need no man. And she, exactly. was, she was out singing. She was just walking around singing Beyonce. Exactly. There's, I mean, there's so many, as, as humans and as one of the most social animals that in the world, you know, out of all the animals, we're, we're up there in terms of us. It's hard for us to relate to these animals that don't really need to rely on um, other individuals to survive except for reproduction. Um, mm. But even, you know, animal, I've talked about mass sport, spawning before. So releasing your gametes into the ocean, it means you don't even have to um, go anywhere near anyone else. You can just release your gametes into the water column. They do their thing and you're just sitting there for your life. So, you know, there's some other strategies that we can take inspiration from, I think. <laughs> and, um, yeah, hopefully, hopefully, um, 
Yeah, I, I don't think these animals feel loneliness and solitude like we do. They're just complete. Yeah. It's on a completely different level. So, yeah, yeah we shouldn't feel. It's fine. They're napping. Exactly. They're napping. exactly. Plus, they're amazing at baking sourdough. Uh, I saw inspo from the deep, deep sea, uh, Ricky Lee Erickson. It's always so much fun to chat. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. Second Stitch is a not-for-profit social enterprise that employs women from refugee and asylum-seeker backgrounds to make textiles. In light of increased demand in the community, the crew is currently making and selling reusable face masks. And to tell us about all the activity, we're joined by Melbourne textile artist and studio coordinator at Second Stitch, Rachel Wood. Rachel, welcome to Breakfasters. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me here. Our pleasure. Now, at risk of running you even further off your feet, can you tell us about the new undertaking at Second Stitch and how the project has been received? Yeah, so I guess, you know, over the last two weeks especially, things have really levelled up here in in Melbourne. Um, So we are working uh, day in, day out, uh, sewing masks for the community. So we... Our space, it's a training organisation, so we spend, you know, most of our days usually training people from refugee, asylum seeker backgrounds. Um, At the moment, it's been school holidays, Um, so for the last two weeks we have been, um, yeah, producing masks. So what's been really fabulous is that the students who have undertaken the course Um, we've actually been able to uh, employ as seamstresses to now start joining our team and creating masks for for the program. Wow. So ordinarily someone would turn up and you would, uh, what would Second Stitch ordinarily do under usual circumstances? They will come in and you can learn or? Yeah, so we're actually, we do do a lot of things. So we, um, so predominantly a training uh, organisation, but Second Stitch is we provide clothing alterations and a repair service. So that's that's been a really great way for the community to get involved in our space is to when their clothing needs repaired to be repaired or altered, they can come in, meet our team, and our staff can fix that up for them. Mm. Um, other than that, we also make beautiful homewares. So um, we often get... Uh, end-of-the-roll fabrics uh, given to us or donated to us by local manufacturers that don't need fabric anymore, and we actually turn them into beautiful products for the shop that the community can also buy. So usually that's what we'd be doing. We'd be producing and we'd be helping the community by altering and repair clothing. Um, People can also get involved in workshops, so... Um, learning how to sew, you know, sewing 101 on the weekend, one-day workshops, um, or they can get involved in the training program Certificate 3 in clothing. So what are the face masks, masks like? Is there an art to it? There's a bit of an art, yeah. So we actually use um, uh, industrial machines. So if you want to get the speed up um, and, you, and if you want to get a really good strong stitch then an industrial machine is the best so it's good to have a bit of skills on the industrial machine um but basically yeah you just need to know they're not too hard to create it's just two layers of fabric and and knowing how to um make a seam nice and strong and yeah that's basically how many, oh, sorry. Uh, sorry how many uh 
how long does it take to make one and how many are you churning out every day? That's a great point. So for our more sort of skilled, experienced seamstresses, they are whipping them out now. So it takes a little while to get the flow happening and that's really dependent on um, how well we've prepared for that. So there's a whole lot of th- a lot of things that happen before that stage. There's the cutting of the fabric. So we're having to bulk cut the fabrics. If we've bulk cut fabrics and bulk cut elastic, then the seamstress's job is much easier. They can they can get them done much quicker. So it's a whole team effort. Um, if we've packed them correctly and we've made the bundles correctly, then the seamstresses can really whip them out. So we're looking at, you know, a person might make 40 to 50 in, in one day of work. It's really amazing. And is that yeah. in demand? Because I know I've been, we were just talking a little bit before we came on, I was like, I've been trying to get cloth and face masks from somewhere, but haven't been able to source them because they're selling out at such a high rate. Are, they, are you keeping up with the demand at the moment? So I would say that we're probably not at the moment. So each day is a new day for us and the demand just seems to get higher and higher as more people find out about us. And so we're working on um, reconnecting with um, our seamstresses that we've worked with in the past, getting them on board. Of course, there's strict protocols now with, you know, health and safety of everyone and making sure everyone feels really safe and trained up to use the space correctly and to be stitching these masks so that the community feels safe and seamstresses feel safe. Uh, And I suppose you're wearing the face masks while you're working. Yeah, we are. So it's really important. You know, seamstresses and um, production assistants and cutters would use face masks in the industry anyway because the fibres that surround us in a studio, if, you, if you're cutting and stitching all day with fibres, it's, it's good to have personal protective equipment anyway. So mm. masks are quite a common occurrence in the studio. So um, wearing a mask, it, it, it can be quite normal for us. So yeah, it's 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 now everyone gets an opportunity to see see what it feels like. <laughs> uh, and what are you using for fabric? Are you using stuff that you couldn't use earlier, or like where where are you reaching to in the in your place? Yes, so we would obviously usually work with um, people that donate end of the roll fabrics, but that would not be at all enough to meet the demands. There's not enough of that fabric, so we are having to work with um, local. Um, manufacturers, you know, lots in Brunswick that we work with. Brunswick has a big community of fabric suppliers and and wholesalers. So we're getting, we're working with them. We're reconnecting with local businesses to make sure that they're getting the support as well as, um, you know, trying to get enough to produce the demand that we have. Mm. They're absolutely beautiful, by the way. Oh, yeah. (laughs) They're all incredibly striking. Uh, And and so uh, where do you want to send people to? Where do we want to send people to? Yeah, because I so I, I'm you can't turn up, I suppose. So people ordering online. Oh yes. So at the moment, just for public safety as well, we have closed our shop and we've only made it available for pickup online orders only. Um, that means that we're just directing everyone to our website. If you find that we have sold out, join the mailing list. We really ask you to join the mailing list because. We're a local production, so it does actually mean that we can restock quite quickly. It's not offshore production. We don't have to wait for that kind of thing. So we can produce things. We're looking at levelling up and having more seamstresses on board. So it does mean that we can restock quicker from day to day. So 
joining the mailing list, best way to keep in touch, follow our socials. Um, that way we can inform you when they're up and running and you can click and collect. Okay. It's uh, secondstitch.org.au is the website and you can follow Second Stitch on Instagram at Second Stitch Melbourne. And we've been speaking with studio coordinator at Second Stitch Social Enterprise, Rachel Wood. Thanks heaps, Rachel. Thanks so much for having me. Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast, The Best Bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.